Hello everyone and welcome to episode one of the Football Manager Focus podcast. I of course jest, that was just in relation to a, a bad Twitter joke I made this week. This is really episode 28 of the Switch Focus podcast. With me today is Ginny Wu. Uh, unfortunately, Andrew has been unable to make it. He's got a prior engagement, but we're going to be uh, spicing in some of his thoughts as we go through the show. Uh, so yeah, so let's... Uh, Get straight into it. We've got no updates from the previous episode, really, so we'll just uh, jump straight into the latest Switch news. It's been a bit of a slow news week for Switch again, uh, but we've got word that Limited Run Games, their copies of Thimbleweed Park, has sold over 10,000 pressings, which is pretty big, so... (laughs) I think it's safe to say that limited run games forays onto the Switch will continue. I'm amazed at how big those numbers are, really. Yeah, and I mean, I think Thimbleweed Park was a really good um, indie game, um, but I'm not so sure if it sort of was the kind of game that had, um, I guess, the the appeal to sell over a thousand, over ten thousand physical copies. Um, just because I think of the, you know, the niche presentation and whatnot and the puzzle style of game that probably wouldn't have resonated as hard with the Switch's younger crowd. So, yeah, I mean, good job that it did. Um, and I'm always keen to see more of these initiatives. So hopefully we'll get another cool release soon. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is due to the, you know, the the sort of legend, if you will, behind the, the developers and something like this might be... Oh, yeah. Worth something yeah. as a collectible, especially if you've got some of those older PC games by by Ron Gilbert in your in your collection. That could be could a be. thing that's driving mm. the sales. Mm. Um, that's a, that's about all we've got, really. So uh, let's just jump into what we've played this week. Okay, so as as usual, I've played very little because I <laughs> uh, I did manage to finish Xenoblade since we've been missing. Yeah. Uh, which was enjoyable. I'm glad I got through it. I did switch it down to easy just to speed up the pace, and I'm sort of glad I did that because there were a couple of times I spent a couple of hours on one boss, and I, I really didn't want to keep doing that with, with so much on my plate at the moment. Mm. Um, have you finished it yet, Ginny? No, I haven't. Um, I'm still dragging my heels on it. <laughs> it's just... I just got to a point where um, I was probably like you in the sense that bosses were taking me just about forever to get through and I just had other stuff in my place so I just thought you know I just leave it for a little bit later I'll come back to it but it's just so hard to come back to after a break I booted it up and I was like the combat is so so long yeah every fight <laughs> it's so takes tedious. Forever. yeah and I was just I put it up and I was like listen I've got lost fear on my plate to finish still that <laughs> one is daunting but somehow still more doable than this so I'll probably come back to it much later on once I'm actually done with lost fear which I haven't made any progress in since last week, so this is going <laughs> to take... getting that out this of the way. This is just the ongoing saga. It's just this game that I have to get out of the way. So eventually I'll get there. But yeah, I have I have not finished it yet, no. Yeah, so um, with Xenoblade, I found that switching it down to easy sped up the fights considerably. How how considerably? Like, what are um, we talking here? A good, a good chunk. I'd say it probably halved the, oh, the speed of the fights. Okay, um, okay, all right. Enemies just seem to have less... HP than they do. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm dam- doing more damage, and obviously the elemental stuff is is less important. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I remember when I when I first started playing Xenoblade, I, I sort of complimented it on how it introduced the the mechanics. Like mm-hmm. it would give you a mechanic, give you like a good couple of hours to get used to it before adding the next layer onto it. Yeah. I don't know if it's just because of the length of time I spent away from it, but the it just kept throwing up um, things that I was required to do that I didn't. I'm pretty sure it didn't teach me before. So oh there was yeah. About like the elemental orbs and stuff, yeah, I had to really had go the, away and research yeah. what they were. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, the the story does really get there. Yeah, like it's it's a bit hit and miss and it drags its heels at times. Mm. Uh, and it's definitely not as well paced as the original Xenoblade mm. Chronicles, but it, it does get there in the end. And, you know, I was quite invested and like, I don't know if it's just because I spent nearly 100 hours in it but once it was done I, I, I've come to really miss it even though I was glad it was over but Fair yeah enough. Uh, so you've been playing Penny Punching Princess I gather and no yes I have been playing Penny Punching Princess um, this is the game that both Andrew and myself strangely expressed interest in I wouldn't have thought it was his cup of tea at all no I didn't either Um, but apparently he's been cracking into it so I'm not quite sure how he's been going um, but I've been enjoying it. Um, it's a bit of shallow entertainment, um, even though purportedly it was meant to be or marketed as like a like a satire of capitalism. Um, obviously, for a Japanese brawling game, it does not go that deep. So if you're looking for some scathing critique of how the world is run, this is obviously not the game for you. It is called Penny Punching Princess for a reason. Um, it's a Nisa game. Do not expect too much. Um, but it is some really good meaningless fun. Um, it is a, I would say it's a simple brawler, um, simple in the sense that there aren't really that mechanic, that many mechanics for you to learn as you pick it up. So it's like a top-down brawler where you sort of go in there, not much of a story, you just pick a level that suits your fancy and just beat some stuff up. Um, how this is different from a regular brawler is you've got the ability to pull up a calculator and basically throw money at things so you can use money on monsters or environmental traps to take possession of them and use them against other monsters in the level. Um, so if you're struggling a little bit in combat, you can just pull up a calculator and go, right, 600 bucks, let's go. I'm going to tame this monster and it'll fight for me. Um, this doesn't work in boss fights, um, so I'm not quite sure why they stopped it there when they sort of allowed you to buy pretty much everything else in the game. Um, How weird. Yeah, and um, so... I mean, it's, yeah, like I said, it's it's not really the critique of of materialism that we were hoping for. Well, that some people may have been hoping for. But it's just a really, really fun brawler. I really enjoyed it. The character designs really, really pop. The art style's a bit repetitive. Um, obviously, the multiple levels in, like, a dungeon sort of format, they don't do a lot to distinguish themselves from one another. So if you're looking for a game that's got, like, you know, sweeping environments and, like, oh, beautiful hand-painted art kind of thing, <laughs> this is not going to be that game for you. But it is really fun. Um, it's really good to just sort of tap away at a bunch of keys and just see enemies like explode across the screen. And it's also quite good to get sort of power trip going of just sort of throwing a huge bunch of money at something and just possessing it and just decimating the whole environment with it. So it's got that aspect of fun to it, the sort of wanton destruction element, which I quite enjoyed it at sometimes. Um, but I found some parts of the, the leveling system um, just a bit strange. Um, I enjoyed the whole, you can buy your way through a level mechanic, but why not extend that to leveling up your skills? Um, you're kind of forced to explore environments to pick up tiny little gold items, and that's what will level up your character. 
which makes no sense to me because I'm just going, if I have all this gold in my possession, why can't I just buy my own skills? So, I mean, if you're okay with all this sort of tiny, um, I guess, contradictions in the game's sort of overall hypothesis or message about money and capitalism or whatever, then it's not a big deal at all because it is still super fun. Um, but if you're wanting a huge challenge out of the game, um, probably not going to be the not, probably not going to be the title for you. Um, I know that you can't. The game doesn't autosave, um, but it's got a checkpoint system. So I would just be mindful of that. I know Andrew was a little bit miffed about the game not autosaving, which is fair enough. But I found the levels sort of really short, almost too short. So I never really felt the need to, you know, sort of be like put my switch down, do something else. Oh no, I haven't saved it. Blah blah blah. So. Yeah, I mean, it's just a fun brawler. Don't think too hard when you play it. And it is really cute. So if you like Nisa games and you want to support them, I picked this one up as well and hope that we get another Disgaea very soon. <laughs> I think one got announced, didn't it, for Japan? Oh, yeah, for, for Japan. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure it'll come at some point. One day. Um, Now, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed they didn't uh, lean harder into the capitalism thing because that was in a lot of the press releases I, I saw that was like the big selling point like criticism on capitalism yeah and it's... it just doesn't sound like it's delivered yeah it hasn't at all I mean I think if we could have bought pretty much everything in the game that would have been the real kicker but I think leaving it at buying minor monsters in a regular level and not using that money element or that money sort of gimmick anywhere else was a little bit disappointing yeah yeah, because they could have done it in a way where if you can buy it, you can buy everything, sure, but then it'll just completely ruin the experience for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and then that would that would have been the commentary. Um, so Andrew, you've, as you mentioned, has been playing this as well. Uh, let's just cut to what he thinks about the game. Hello, listeners. This is Andrew. I'd like to apologize for my absence from this episode in its live recording. Uh, there was a scheduling snafu, and I just was not able to be present which is unfortunate. It'll be the first episode I missed, but hopefully it'll also be the last. I'm going to talk about Penny Punching Princess briefly here. I'm going to say some things that make it sound like I'm really down on this game, but I'm really not. I'm really, really not. In spite of everything, I actually did enjoy the time that I spent playing with this game. But it just does have some fundamental issues that I would like to address. First and foremost, it doesn't autosave, and I really do wonder how much data I'm going to accidentally lose because I just quit to the dashboard after I finished a level and I don't go to the menu and save. Because this is 2018, and it's kind of ridiculous that we have a game that doesn't autosave itself. And uh, Penny Punching Princess is one of those games. Now, as to the other things, this is a very, very grindy game, and. That can be a bad thing or a good thing. I think if you're in the mood for it, then you might enjoy it. Uh, but I've read the reviews, and I don't disagree with what they say. They say that uh, if they were trying to go through the levels, and they would often get to a boss fight, and they would have to quit out the level and go back and grind up equipment. I'm getting out of that by taking it very slowly in my progression through the game, when I beat a level and I found all the Zenigami statues in it, I stop, I go back, and I make sure that I have bribed all the monsters and all the relics that I need to do to unlock that Zenigami statue so I can get the armor and I can get the stat points from it. So my progression through the game has been very slow, much slower than is usually typical for me with a game like this. 
I've only finished chapter one, and I have gone no further than that. I imagine there's going to be quite a bit more to this game than I've first played, but that's just as far as I've gotten. And I tried to sit down and play this and just go through it in huge chunks, which is how I usually play a video game if you've followed me on Twitter or on Twitch. But I don't think this is the game that you want to do that on. I think if you do that in Penny Punching Princess, you're going to get burned out very quickly. What I found and how I have actually enjoyed playing the game was when I have a few minutes free, such as on my 20-minute bus ride that I take every day to get to one of my jobs, I find Penny Punching Princess to be an excellent game to play on that because there's enough time to play one or two levels and grind out some of the bribes I need to make to get the next Zenigami statue, and then when I've wiped out all the Zenigami statues that I need to get, then I can move on and play the next level. So it's a very slow burner, and it's grindy, and it can be a bit tedious, so I think you need to come at this with the right mindset, and I think you need to come at this accepting that it's going to take you a while to play, because if you just try to play only this, I don't think you're going to have a very good time. So this is just speaking with my own philosophy of how I play games and just my own habits. My concern is that I'm going to step away from this game to play something else and I'm not going to come back to it. And I'm I'm already feeling that way with all the new releases that came out on Thursday, which I'm going to talk about in a bit. But I have Penny Punching Princess. I spent a good deal of time with it to get all that stuff in chapter one done, but I've got other games to play now, and I'm worried that I'm not going to come back to it. Maybe I'll update us again with that in the next episode, but Penny Punching Princess, I don't want to say I don't like it, but I do have mixed feelings about it, and it definitely has problems. Okay, we're back with uh, me and Ginny again. So, uh, one of the games I've been playing has been Lego Marvel Super Heroes 2. Uh, now, I love some of the older LEGO games. The LEGO Star Wars games in particular are really, really cool. Um, and, you know, of course, they're, they're kids' games. Um, coming into this one, it's been a while since I've played a, a LEGO game outside of uh, the Minecraft alike. I can't remember what it's called now. It'll come to me later. We talked about it on one of the shows. Um but uh, yeah, I feel like the games have got a bit more complex since I last played. Like, there's a lot of layers and and puzzles to it now, which feels a bit odd for the sort of the kid-friendly game they they position themselves as. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's a it's a fun adventure with Marvel characters and variations on them. So there's yeah, you've got Spider Man, but Spider Gwen's in there as well and things <laughs> like that. Um, and they use all their abilities in like brilliantly fun ways, and it's comical as anything to see these Lego versions swinging around and doing these abilities. Um, but the the story is just not as good as I've known from previous Lego games. Like, I think the worst thing that's ever happened to these games has been voice acting. Oh, really? Yeah, I just don't. Get on with it. I sort of preferred the Lego games as silent slapstick comedies. Right, right. So there was some like amazingly funny things in Lego Star Wars that was just just due to the fact that they weren't talking, <laughs> okay. and they just yeah, it's a bit obnoxious. 
Um, it's more of this one's more of an open world game than I've seen previously. I know they sort of brought that in with one of the Lego Batman games, mm-hmm. um, and basically the the villain Kang goes around and he he collects all these famous Marvel locations and sort of stitches them together into this one city that he he calls uh, Kangopolis or something or Chronopolis, uh, and and this sort of becomes the open world playground that you you play around in mm-hmm. um and you know the aside from those few criticisms it's what you expect from a lego game when when you start a story mission you take them to a um, you know a closed off level that you work through uh with puzzles and then there's like a boss at the end which is the usual format and there is lots to do if you want to find everything and 100 percent it uh, which means jumping back into levels in free play mode and collecting all the coins or the Lego kits and things. Um, I did have a couple of glitches in some of the levels where I was sort of stuck, and then suddenly a character would teleport to another area I hadn't seen before. Okay. <laughs> in the middle of a boss fight. Oh. And then he would. I tried to transfer to someone else because they weren't in the same area, and mm-hmm. they were still near the beginning of the level, and I couldn't get to the other person. Jeez. And and then suddenly they glitched there too, and then. Yeah, I don't know how, but I got through it. <laughs> Congratulations, somehow. Yeah, so, yay me. Uh, so I'm about halfway through it. Um, I think I'm going to see it through to the end. It's sort of it's fun enough and mindless enough that I want to mm. keep playing it. But yeah, as, as a kid's game, I'm, I'm feeling it's a bit more complicated than I'm used to. Maybe I'm not giving kids enough credit these days. How Who long knows? are these Lego games, out of curiosity? Ooh, so from research, this one's about 12 hours. If you just mainline the story, which is like entirely possible, you're not missing out on anything, like leveling wise. If you do that, yeah. Uh, but then there's there's lots of supplementary content. So in each level, there's like a, a Stanley to rescue, voiced, which is kind of <laughs> cool. Um, and you you sort of have to go back in with other characters oh, that yeah. aren't available in the story version to go back and get in. And there's lots of areas where you can unlock things where key characters weren't in your party at that point so you, you could probably extend it up to, to 30 hours easily if you wanted to 100% it okay that's a decent length for a kids game yeah it's there's a lot to do um but my attention span just wants me to get through the story and and ditch yeah. it for something else which is just what i bought it for um yeah so fun if you like Lego, but there's a couple of issues that i've had with it cool um now uh you've also been Playing some more of Atelier, Liddy, and Swell. Mm-hmm. I have been. So that has sort of been the game that has been um, sort of my, my downtime game. Um, it's a really beautiful game, as I mentioned when I first talked about it on the podcast. Um, and I've just found I've enjoyed the art style of the game more and more as I progressed into it. Um, so as a quick refresher, obviously, um, in this Atelier game, Liddy and Swell, it's about... The subline is basically uh, Atelier Lydia and Sewell, The Mysterious Paintings. So um, if you missed the first time I talked about it, um, most of the game involves sort of your characters being transported into magical paintings um, in order to collect special resources and like sort of wonderful items for use in their everyday job as alchemists in the real world. So it's got the element of escapism to it that I really, really enjoyed before. And um, initially I had a critique when I played maybe about the first 10 hours or so talking about it on the podcast that I felt like the art style, they could have done more with. They, 
I felt like they could have incorporated different kinds of art into it instead of just sort of using that one same sort of pastel quasi anime art style throughout. Um, but I've actually found that I don't mind that so much now that I'm about double my time into it. Um, I think that any complaints I may have had about a lack of graphic diversity in the environments, um, I don't really have those anymore. Um, I feel like the continuity of the game is helped by the fact that they maintain the same quasi-anime art style throughout, um, and they really incorporate that very well into things like the combat framing as well as the exploration. So yeah, I mean, my update on the game is mostly that I highly recommend it to anyone that hasn't played any Atelier games. I feel like it's kind of baby's first Atelier. It's not very daunting. Um, I know that the rest um, are notable for being extremely long in length if you want to complete the game. But I've heard that Atelier Lydia and Suelle is probably about 60 hours if you 100% pretty much everything. Um, and it's just such a happy, uplifting game. Um, I feel the way I feel about this, um, the way I felt about Kirby. Like I just couldn't be mad playing Kirby even though I make some silly mistakes and, you know, almost kill kill off all of my companions somehow running into something that was on fire. Um, <laughs> it's just so hard to feel down when you play a game that looks this beautiful and has such a lighthearted, I guess, approach to story. So, yeah, um, once again, I recommend this game perhaps even more because of its the way it feels like a sort of the, the antithesis to the games that are currently out there that I've been playing recently, like, Far Cry and stuff like that that involves a lot of shooting and killing and and death. Um, this is a very sort of lighthearted take um, on an RPG, and I really hope that we see more of Gus games on the Switch. So, yeah, recommend this twice as much now. Cool. What's the uh, difficulty spikes like on this? Is it or is it just nice and simple going um, throughout? I found it quite nice and simple. Um, the boss fights in particular are not very difficult. Um, what I find sort of more I guess more mentally taxing would be just doing the alchemist exams um, <laughs> in this game where you sort of level up and craft potions and stuff. So I say the combat feels like a like a backseat option, um, sort of more like something that you have to do to get the materials to create beautiful, wondrous things. So yeah, it's got a really good curve, at least in my experience. I'm not playing it on hard or anything, um, but you can if you want to. Uh, but no, it is, it is sort of like, the, you, it is your average Atelier game, I would say. Nothing too taxing mechanically. Cool. I'd be tempted, I think, if there wasn't uh, East 8 and uh, Octopath Traveler on the horizon. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, gosh. We're so close. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, So, just to take a break from us two talking, uh, Andrew has had a lot to play over (laughs) the last two weeks. Um, So, it's probably worked out well that he's not here at the moment to keep down the recording time. Uh, so we're just going to cut to all the other stuff he's played, pretty much. And uh, so yeah, so here's Andrew with what he's been playing. Hello once more, this is Andrew, and I'm here to talk about all of the new and old games that I've played in the past two weeks since we had our last episode, and there's quite a few of them. So I'm going to try to breeze through these as quickly as I can, but you're probably going to be hearing my voice and my voice alone for the next few minutes. First up is Wonder Boy, The Dragon's Trap, which actually was among the first games to be released on the Switch, but I didn't get around to playing it until shortly after we recorded our last episode. But I sat down and started to playing it, and I had a hard time stopping. I think this is a really great action-adventure game. It's actually a remake of Wonder Boy 3, which was from what I've read, was the first Wonder Boy game that was actually released exclusively for consoles. It didn't start as an arcade game. 
and it came out a little bit after Metroid came out, so you can feel that design influence in there. But you start the game off as this kind of knight character, and after beating the first boss, that character actually gets cursed and has to spend the rest of the game going through different transformations until they get to the final boss where they fight to get restored back to their human form. And that's the game. And you get different transformation abilities, like the first thing you get turned into is this kind of dragon creature that has a ranged attack but is otherwise very weak. And then you get turned into a mouse knight, which has just ridiculous, almost worthlessly short range, but is also half the height of all the other characters, so they can fit in smaller spaces, and they can also climb on walls and ceilings. So you get some interesting situations in there. And there's there's other things that you can unlock as far as accessing different areas and different transformations, and I don't want to talk about all of them, because I'd be talking about them forever, but I was really impressed with this game, and I think... I'm very glad that it got the remake it did, because I think this game deserves more attention and uh, deserves to be better remembered than I think it was before it got this remake. Now, you can play the original appearance of the game with the press of a button. All you do is press the right shoulder button. It'll actually restore the original graphics. But I think unless you're really interested to play uh, a Sega Master System game on your Switch, you're probably going to want to stick with the remade graphics because they are just they're wonderful they're in the style of franco-belgian comic books and just very lushly animated and really helps to sell the scale of this world that when you're playing the original graphics does feel very constrained and very claustrophobic but this is a remake and a very faithful remake of a game that was made in 1989 so it has a lot of the platforming problems of a game that was made in that era. It has that design philosophy of difficulty. Quite often in a number of locations you'll come across a very tricky jump that has a monster that spawns on the other side of it that you can't see until you after you've already made the jump. Now, in the game's favor, there's actually no bottomless pits that will instantly kill you, so you do have a chance to recover. But just be forewarned, uh, if you're at all familiar with games from the 80s and their concept of fairness in terms of design, this is very much a game of that era. But it's it's not insurmountable, and I still quite enjoyed myself playing it. And I, I highly recommend it if you haven't played it yet. Probably pick it up on a sale the next time it goes on sale in the eShop. It's very much worth the money. The next game I played was Paper Wars, Cannon Fodder Devastated. I picked this up on the eShop because I've actually been itching to play a good tower defense game on the Switch, and this said in its shop description that it was a tower defense game. It's really not. It's a turret defense game where you have an image of a screen, and there's an army of soldiers moving from the right side to the left side of the screen, and you control one single turret, and you're supposed to stop that army from crossing from one side to the other. It comes with three campaigns built into it. I played the first one, and I was just bored out of my skull, because you get one basic shot, and that's usually enough to kill everything, and there are nods towards making each level quote-unquote different, 
by giving you different enemies to attack or putting obstacles in the field that your enemies will have to maneuver around so that way you're targeting different locations rather than just blowing them up as they move across the center of the screen. But I just didn't feel it. It felt very repetitive to me. I was not impressed by the first campaign at all. Luckily, the second and third campaign give the game some much-needed variety. The second campaign takes place in the winter during a supply shortage, so you really have to make your shots count. And the third campaign is a zombie campaign. You know, eh, eh, zombies. We've all seen those. We're all sick of them. But... It also color codes the zombies, and it color codes your missiles, so you have to make sure you're firing the right color missile at the right color zombie to kill them. Now, I still don't want to say that I had fun in those second and third campaigns, but at least it felt like I was actually having to make an effort to play this game. Uh, So Paper Wars, Cannon Fodder Devastated, not a huge fan from me on this one. Sorry... Now, back in December, I said that, much to my amazement, one of my favorite games that had come out during our hiatus was Pinball FX3, and Pinball FX3 is a free-to-download game, and it comes with an excellent pinball table called Sorcerer's Lair, just built in, and it's totally worth just your bandwidth, however much you pay for it, just the effort of downloading Sorcerer's Lair because it's a fantastic pinball table. But they released a new pack for Pinball FX3 of Bethesda-themed tables. There's a Fallout-themed table, there's a Doom 2016-themed table, and also a Skyrim table. Now, if you've listened to the podcast, you know I'm a huge Skyrim fan, so I was super interested to play the Skyrim table. And... There are some really cool ideas on this table. You actually do create a Skyrim character. It's not with the depth of Skyrim, but it's definitely there. And you actually go through most of the Skyrim core campaign. And you have to equip your character and power them up. You do fight monsters. You do fight bandits. You do fight dragons. And it's all done on a pinball table. And... It kept me engaged for quite some time. Now, luckily, I've played a few arcade games that do this. It it still surprises me when I see it on an arcade game or a pinball table, but this game actually does save your progress. So if you run out of balls on your map, it actually will save your character's stats and experience level, and it'll save your progress in the quest. So that way, the next time you boot up the table, you'll actually be able to pick up more or less where you left off. The only thing that's reset is your score. Which is really nice. But the downside is, at least certainly in comparison to Sorcerer's Lair, I didn't find this to be a particularly interesting table to play on. Uh, It's all just ranged in a half circle above the flippers. There's not really a lot of depth or texture to this table. I don't want to give the impression that I'm like a, a pinball aficionado and I have all the inside facts on pinball design, but of the pinball games that I have played, I think this might be one of the weaker tables I've ever seen. Uh, And the weirdest thing about this table is the entire thing is slanted to the right, and it's subtle. It actually took me a little while to notice that it even was, but it makes it really difficult to hit 
balls into the lanes that you want to because everything is actually dragging further to the right than you might be reading the table as. And also, a constant issue that I was running into on this table was that slant was making my ball just go like a magnet towards the right drain, and it kind of sucked all my enjoyment out of it. Uh, just finishing this table and finishing the core Skyrim quest on it, I was kind of gritting my teeth after a while because this was a very frustrating table. I do want to come back around and play the Fallout table sometime soon here. Hopefully I'll have a better time with that. But I think if you're into Pinball FX3 and you're looking for a new table to play on and you're looking for a, an ambitious pinball table not necessarily a well-designed pinball table but an ambitious one with that uh, character experience building and some ideas towards a uh, perpetual game occurring i think you could do worse than the skyrim table uh, it's an interesting idea next up i played the bunker which was believe it or not an fmv game a full motion video game yes they still make these I was a child in the heyday of the FMV game where they got their well-deserved poor reputation. Uh, I, I'm talking games like Night Trap, you know, games like that where they aren't necessarily bad games. Uh, I don't want to compliment them and say they're misunderstood or good games, but I don't think they're as bad as people said. But they are full motion video games where everything is filmed using live actors on sets and these games did not have great budgets and the people making them were not filmmakers so these games got a very well-deserved reputation for being incredibly cheesy and very low quality i'm happy to say that the bunker is an fmv game that looks like it was made by people who understand how to make a film it's basically a PowerPoint game. There's very little actual decision-making you make in this. There's very little in the way of puzzle-solving. It's really just moving a cursor around on the screen and directing this character around hallways and watching the story that unfolds. And the deepest puzzle solving that's really in this is determining where you're supposed to go next in the story. And there's really not much to be determined there. But as to the story itself, is you do follow and guide a character named John who has lived his entire life, he's 30 plus years old, in this bunker surviving nuclear fallout. His life is very boring, very routine, very mundane. It's been every action that he has, that he takes during the day, is very structured and scheduled. And it's justified that he does that because that's how he maintains his sanity. But then one day... There's a computer malfunction that makes him go off of his schedule and it just upends his entire existence and makes him discover a very difficult truth about his existence in the bunker and what happened there when he was a child that has made it so that way he is the only person still living there. Uh, a lot of the marketing for this game and even the icon for it on the Switch makes it look like this is a kind of a, a horror game. Uh, I think I, I've even seen it tagged 
on a few video game websites and wikis as a survival horror game. It is not. Do not be fooled. Uh, I think they're trying to draw people in uh, of specific fandoms with that imagery because there is a sequence near the end of the game where they take something that is very important to what happens in the story, but they take it wildly out of context to make it look like you're trapped in this bunker with this axe killer. I don't want to spoil the ending because actually I was really impressed with the ending to this story because it was not the contrived lame plot twist I was predicting it would be. But don't think this is a horror story. It is tense. This is a thriller, I think you could fairly call it. Uh, and it's there's suspenseful areas, and there's even some images that are pretty scary, but I would not describe this as a horror genre thing at all. It's $12.99 on the eShop in the US, so it's probably closer to $20, Australia, New Zealand. And like I said, there's not really much of a game here. It's kind of, it's just a movie, really, that you're watching where every now and then you can select an icon to direct a character to move down another area and then another bit of movie plays that's really the extent of the gameplay but it's well made it's a well-told story it's well filmed and all the actors in it do a pretty solid job i was satisfied with the bunker but i don't think i'm going to remember it in the long term except as an fmv game that didn't suck Next up, new release on the 12th was Don't Starve, Nintendo Switch Edition. Don't Starve was one of the first indie games I ever played, uh, and I was really happy with it. Uh, I've spent most of my time playing it on PlayStation Network, on PlayStation 4, and I, I've never gotten very far in it, <laughs> but... Even having said that, I, I kind of hesitate to describe this game too much because I think that a lot of the fun of Don't Starve is being thrown into this world and having no idea what you're supposed to do except have the general goal, the general knowledge of what you're supposed to be doing is Don't Starve. There are other things that you're supposed to accomplish in this world, but if I were to describe them to you, I think I would be removing a lot of the fun of this game, a lot of the fun of discovery and exploration, of finding this thing on the ground and figuring out what the game wants you to do with it. Now, it, it is a survival sim, so the things that are in it are there that you expect, where you start off with literally nothing, and you have to build it up to an area of self-sufficiency. But it's not just about becoming self-sufficient, it's not just about getting to the point where you can defend yourself from worse and worse monsters that begin to appear the longer you play the game. There's also other goals to be accomplished. So I, th I think if you're looking for a game that will really challenge you, that will just kill you left, right, and center, because this is a roguelike game in the loosest sense of the term, you will often create a new game after dying and be instantly presented with a scenario where you cannot win. And that's just the nature of Don't Starve. So if that doesn't sound fun to you, then you might want to pass on this. But if you're looking for a game where you're just trying to comprehend what you're even supposed to be doing, I think Don't Starve will fascinate you for hours on end. 
I highly recommend it. It's a very well-made game. Uh, I think it might be one of the best indie games ever made. And I'm frankly amazed it took over a year for it to end up on the Switch. I really would have guessed a year ago that it would be one of the first games on the Switch, right there alongside Binding of Isaac. But it took this long, but here it is. Let's be happy. Next up, another Thursday release is Streets of Red Devil's Dare Deluxe. Now, as you can probably tell from the name, this is an update of a game called Devil's Dare, which has been on Steam for a few years now. Uh, and it it has kind of a middling reputation on Steam. I think it averages about three stars right now. And I don't really think it deserves a middling reputation. Uh, I think this is above average. It's appropriate that Streets of Red would come out alongside the Ready Player One movie because I can tell that the people who made Streets of Red are fans of a lot of things, and they incorporated all of those things into their game. As you may be able to guess from the title, Streets of Red, it's a, a beat-em-up game along the lines of Streets of Rage or River City Ransom. But what happens is, at the start of it, there's a bunch of people at a fan convention. And the fan convention is visited by a fairy, who introduces himself by saying, Hey, listen! And while the fairy is there, the world is suddenly transformed into a zombie apocalypse, ruled over by characters from horror movies. Like, one of the enemies is a big guy in a hockey mask, wielding Cloud's Buster Sword, except he's so big that Cloud's Buster Sword looks like a butcher knife in his hands, and when you finally beat him and his mask pops off, he actually has Isaac's face from Binding of Isaac. That's how so many properties are pulled together in this game. And the characters are actually what really got me interested in playing. One of them is basically the Shovel Knight. He's dressed in a suit of armor, and his weapon is a shovel. Another character has the Magitech armor from Final Fantasy VI. Another character is Link without the costume. <laughs> and the last character is a ninja. So it might be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reference because there were a number of really excellent arcade games starring the Ninja Turtles in the early 90s. I think that might be what he's referencing, but I'm not 100% sure. And then... Surviving in this game requires a lot of money, and you get money from defeating enemies, but you have to use a fatality system built into the game to get them to drop their money. Uh, and if you use one of your character's special attacks, and each one has three or four special attacks, then the enemies will drop extra money when you get that fatality. And you really need that money, because while you're learning how to play this game, you are going to die a lot, although there is... I did reach a point where I just hit a groove, where I just I just clicked with this game. I understood what it wanted me to do, and after that, I just quit dying, and I just had massive amounts of cash, which was good because when I got to the final boss, I needed all of it because the final boss was, oh my gosh, hard. But I was really satisfied with this game, actually. It, it, I was a little standoffish when I first started playing with it. I, I was like, yeah, I don't know about this. It, it's a little awkward. Just all the properties it's pulling from, it's a little derivative. And it's, it's an ugly game, too. It uses a color palette where almost everything is a shade of black and brown. It is not a good game to look at. I 
think it might be making fun of the real is brown aesthetic that was all going on in the late 2000s but it just it does not look like a good game but once i got into it and once i settled into the groove of the game and just kind of started to feel it and just killing enemies and getting those fatality bonuses from them I really started to enjoy this. I think this is one of the better brawlers on the Switch. It's not quite as good as Wolverblade, which infamously I still have not finished. But I think if you're looking for a brawler that has a fun spirit, has a good sense of humor, and if you're a fan of the classic games that it's drawing from, I think you get a kick out of it. And the last game that I've played in these past couple weeks that we've been away was Slay Away Camp Butcher's Cut, which is building on the slasher films of the 80s, especially Friday the 13th. But it builds it as a puzzle game. Now, if you've ever played many of the RPGs from the 90s, but especially The Legend of Zelda where you have the frozen puzzle block puzzles, where you know where you're trapped behind a block on a frozen floor and you have to push the block, but the block doesn't stop moving when you push it. It keeps going to the end until it finally hits something that stops it. It's those kind of puzzles, but it's built entirely around playing as this villain in a slasher movie, and you're trying to kill all of the people on the map and then reach a goal and it's absolutely devilish it's definitely not a game for children although there actually is an option to uh, turn the violence and gore off and change all the cinematics to like bright happy things i haven't looked at that yet but i'm just i'm very amused that that would exist at all in a game called slay away camp butcher's cut but there seems to be i haven't finished this game yet but there seems to be dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of puzzles in this thing. There's all kinds of characters you can unlock to play as. There's all kinds of new ways to murder people that you can unlock by uh, spending gold that you earn by solving the puzzles. Slayaway Camp, if you're listening to this episode right now, is 50% off on the eShop right now. And for a game that I think has only been out for a month, that's a pretty great sale for the eShop. I would jump on that right away if you're into puzzle games or you're into slasher films because what little I've played a Slayaway Camp so far has been pretty great. Okay, and then we're back to me. Uh, so the last thing I've been playing was Football Manager Touch 2018. This was a stealth release on Saturday morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I woke up to Twitter messages from friends saying, uh-oh, nice knowing you. Yep. Uh, and yeah... Um, it's pretty good. I'd like more stealth launches, actually, now that I think about it. As much as I, I tend I like to budget for the games, this was a nice surprise to wake up to on the uh the same day that we found out the world was going to war with Syria. Yeah. <laughs> Checks and balances, right? I mean just Yeah. <laughs> Pleasure playing balance. Uh so yeah, so it's uh it's it's a pretty good approximation of football manager for the for the uninitiated football manager. And that's football where you kick the ball with your feet, not with your hands, Americans. Uh, that is basically like a hands-off football experience. You play the team manager, you buy the players, you you pick the teams for every match, you change the tactics depending on who you're against. Uh, and there's it's sort of like a, a weird hands-off strategy game. 
Um, now here, although it's called FM Touch, it does have control support, which is uh, done pretty well. It's a little clunky at first, but after an hour I found it to be second nature. So it's uh, done with a mixture of like virtual cursor and hotkeys. Mm-hmm. So basically the main menu you bring up with the, the left bumper at any time. Uh, contextual menus you bring up with the right bumper. Uh, and then there's some other sort of context keys that speed up the process a little bit. Um, now it's as tactical as Football Manager is on the PC, the full version, but it comes without a lot of the fluff. There's no pre-match media circus. You don't have to do press conferences. There's no like di- direct arguments with players, although a, f- a few have expressed disappointment at not being in the team. Um, it's just about managing the team and getting through the seasons as quickly as possible. This gives it a really enjoyable pace, uh, which suits the Switch no end. And uh, yeah, it's sort of... I just lose hours to this game every year, <laughs> like the full version and you know the other versions. It just like I, I I put it on yesterday morning just to play five ten minutes just before you know just before the podcast just to give people a bit little bit of an overview and then mm. with the idea of I'd spend more time with it during the week, but I, I ended up spending four hours on it. Oh boy! In that one sitting, they they just fly. I think I've spent like 12 hours on it already. Oh, gosh. And it's only been out since yesterday morning. Taking a Liverpool team, of course, because that's who I support. And we were atrocious at the start <laughs> of the season. And I have just sort of turned it around. Um, I think I accidentally made the team worse because I sold a couple of players expecting to be able to get bigger names in. And then it backfired. And then I had an injury crisis. But it's all sorted now. We're back on the mend. Um. What else is there to talk about on this? Oh, yeah, the match engine. So, uh, like more recent Football Manager games, it's got a 3D match engine, and I'm amazed at how well it runs on the Switch, to be honest. Slight criticism, the the virtual cursor is a little choppy during the match, but it's nothing that you can't combat, or it doesn't prevent you from managing your team efficiently. It does lack the ability to yell at your players at halftime or during the game. (laughs) Which was always like a cathartic experience when they conceded stupid goals. Oh gosh! But yeah, for for what it is, it's it's really good. It's I, I gather it's pretty much a straight port of the the iPad game, um, and we do have a little bit of the Nintendo tax where it's a little bit more expensive. But you know, I don't want to play games on my iPad. I want to play them on the, on the Switch. Mm-hmm. And as a football fan, I'm more than happy with it. So that cursor thing, that doesn't get annoying, does it? Because, I mean, just looking at it, the screenshots that people have posted, I just can't... I just I, That annoys me so much, personally, like, using a, it's a cursor just, on the Switch. Yeah, it's it's fine. But you can always just use the touchscreen if you're, you're in handheld. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mode in most cases. So, mm. But I, I prefer physical controls. But I have, I have sort of been using a, a mixture of the two as I'm playing. Mm. Okay. So, but yeah, the, the controls are surprisingly good i thought i found i played with the pro controller most of yesterday and most of today's session has been with the handheld so yeah sweet ready go Okay, it's time for our other regular segment which is the super smash brothers for switch predictions uh, 
Andrew, of course, not here. We'll we'll splice in his after we've done ours. So mine is that Captain Toad will make an appearance in some form, uh, whether that is as a playable character or as just a, a trophy or something like that in the game. I'm not sure. Uh, what do you think of that one? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's feasible, and I think it would make sense, seeing as how we are getting his treasure tracker game um, pretty much, what, in like two or three months or something, Some somewhere really close like that. I think he's adorable. He's been in pretty much every Mario game since, and I think if they're going to revamp the Mario designs or add skins from SM Odyssey, which I'm sure they will, I'm sure Captain Toe will pop in in some way. Yeah, he's he's super popular, so I can't see any reason why they wouldn't. Or or maybe you guide in a tutorial or something. Yeah, he's could good be. for that. He's he sort of does that sort of role in a lot of other games. Um, so what about yours, Jenny? Um, well, mine is I guess also about like a sideline character or sideline characters from a title being in Smash. Um, I think the the allies from Kirby Star Allies, which has just come out, will be probably in the game in some way, shape, or form. Um, probably as maybe power-ups or um, a special skill or something, or maybe even like a weapon that you pick up and it summons one of the the, the group that you can get um, that from defeating bosses and whatnot, or even the DLC allies that you get, like um, King DDD and um, our, our hamster uh, bird and <laughs> other animal trio. Um, I think it's plausible. I think it'll be a fun way to do it, and I'm sure there's going to be a Kirby stage anyway. So but they might, might as well just use the latest iteration of those characters. Yeah, or how about they change the uh, moveset where for oh, each direction yeah. you hold, it shoots a different um, ally at you. So like a fire one or a wind one or something like that. That would be quite good, yeah. And yeah, so Andrew's not here, of course, so we'll just uh, cut to his now. And my prediction for Smash Brothers on Switch is Waluigi playable character. You heard it here first, folks. What are you playing this week, Jenny? Galgun for me, and then Atelier Lydia and Suelle, because I'll need to cleanse my soul after playing some Galgun. Um, and oh. hopefully the rest of Lost Sphere, so stay tuned. Cool, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm going to keep playing Football Manager, because <laughs> I can't help myself. It's a real problem. Mm. I will try and get to subsurface circular, uh, and I'm looking to start Alboy soon. Yes. Either Alboy or Dragon Quest Builders. I well, you've played Dragon Quest Builders, right? No, I haven't no. played it yet. Okay, I have it. Um, and what I'm thinking is maybe I could do like the first chapter, mm. and then play something else, then do the second chapter because I gather all the chapters are pretty similar in length. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I might do that just to chip away at it, because uh, I think each chapter in its own right isn't too much of a time sink, unless you're, again, looking to do everything and unlock everything, so... Yeah, fair enough. I reckon you should try and knock out Subsurface Circular first, though, because it is so short, it's good to sort of just... Unlike, yeah, a, unlike reckon... a rainy night, you know, just, it's like reading a book, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it'll be, I'll finish Lego Marvel Superheroes 2, then Subsurface Circular, yeah. and then fo- Football Manager's just sort of my in-between game as as much as I can limit it. (laughs) Sweet. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Switch Focus Podcast again. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get noticed. You can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast services. 
why not check out our YouTube channel where we regularly upload the first hour of many of the games we play. Uh, Andrew is streaming most of the games that we talk about on the show, and you can find him at twitch.tv forward slash playcritically. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. If you'd like to support the show, you can now do so by buying us a coffee. Details are on our website. Thanks in advance. Uh, Just a quick thing, I think I might link to a a piece I did about Football Manager for IGN. Oh yeah, for sure, you should do that, yeah. It's um, basically about this real-life thing that happened to me when I was playing it on a laptop on a train oh. in England. Okay, all right. And I and I ended up with a assistant manager in a cheering section. Huh. So yeah, check that out. I'll link to that in the show notes. It's, it should be a fun read. Um, and if you want to follow us individually on Twitter, you can do so. I am at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically, and Ginny is at Ginny Woes. 